TLC, American Accounting Association uh, meeting. And you, your, when you talked about your research and about your work and just really about your contribution to the, prof- just everything that you've done, it really inspired me and excited me. And um, I appreciate that the, you taking the time here, not just for me, but because I share stories and conversations with my students. So now they get to see, you know, live <laughs> and, and, and really um, I can ask questions on their behalf. So um, without further ado, thank you so much, Dr. Teresa Hammond, for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Akpan. I mean, I really admire your activism and leadership in the teaching and learning sec- section of the uh, American Accounting Association, because there's nothing more important than educating young people today. So thank you for for doing all this extra work. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, I wanted, if you could just talk about your dissertation, your what inspired you, if, if you could just tell tell that uh, amazing story. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, it's amazing, especially now, you know, 30 years later. At the time, it was kind of painful. <laughs> but, um, you know, this is, we met at the AAA meeting when I was talking about, you know, some of the background on the history of doing research on Black CPAs. So when I was in my PhD program, of course, most of the people did very mainstream research on quantitative topics, such as whether LIFO or FIFO improves your stock price, you know, things like that. But I had worked in public accounting and I had noticed just how incredibly homogeneous it was. It was kind of hard not to notice. And I thought even as a white woman uh, in this profession, I can see that it would be very hard to be a person of color. The the office that I first worked in at Deloitte, there were no people of color. There were no Asian people. There were no Latinx people. There were no black people. And I was uncomfortable and I just couldn't even imagine what it would be like to be someone else. So when I was in my PhD program, I joined NABA uh, because I wanted to, NABA being the National Association of Black Accountants, because I really wanted to belong to a group that was trying to make the profession more inclusive. And as part of that, I um, tried to be a mentor to the Black students at the University of Wisconsin in the business school. There were Black staff and there were Black leaders, but there were no Black faculty in the accounting department. And so it was really important to me that the Black students be able to meet the members of NABA so that they could have some role models, as well as, you know, teaching and leadership. And it was just through that involvement that I thought, well, how did we get here? Like, how are we a profession that's just so much less diverse than most other professions? And so I, this was before Google, right? This is the days, the late 80s didn't have Google, but there were there were there were searches in the library. You could do online searches. And I remember Googling, you know, black CPAs and getting nothing. So then I Googled black lawyers and I still got nothing. Because again, this is when there wasn't that much available on, you know, even in the university system. And then I put black professionals and all that came up was black professional baseball players, black professional basketball players. There was nothing about African Americans in the professions. So I was really, um, it made me think, wow, this is something that somebody needs to pay attention to and somebody needs to, you know, examine. So for my dissertation itself, I interviewed the eight black partners in the New York Big Eight. There were only, as far as I know, and I'm pretty sure I had good information from my NABA friends in the New York area, eight 
black partners in all of New York. And I went to New York because that was the city with the most black partners in the big, big firms. And I interviewed them and found out a little bit or tried to, my actual dissertation was on the current state of the profession, current meaning 1990. And it was after I did the, uh, the dissertation that I really wanted to see what had happened before that led us to where we are now. And I started doing more of the historical work later because uh, partly because, uh, as I mentioned, it was a little painful already to try to get um, the professors at the University of Wisconsin to accept this as a dissertation topic. Fortunately, I had a real champion in Mark Kovaleski, my dissertation chair. But otherwise, I was doing a very unconventional activity. So to have to to make it even more complicated seemed like a mistake. So I focused on the current profession, tried to do some statistical analyses of what may, might make one firm more diverse than another. But um, you know, I tried to just stick to the current. So then it was only after I got my PhD that I was able to spend the time to to do some of the historic work because. Uh, what, was it because your research was qualitative or quantitative? It was mostly something. Yeah. In your research. It was mostly qualitative research. Even then, I was looking at the different um, programs that uh, high school students participated in, like inroads and um, SEO. What's that stand for? Something employment. I don't. I don't remember. But it was a. It was a popular with. Um, uh, in the in business for trying to encourage young people of color to become, uh, you know, accounting and other professionals. So mostly it was qualitative, but um, <laughs> some of the faculty insisted that I put in some, uh, some statistical analysis as well. Uh, I don't think I've had much, I would say, of the several papers I've written since then. I can only think of one or two that actually has any statistical analysis in it. I use descriptive, you know, numbers, but not not statistics anymore because I really am primarily a qualitative researcher. Mm -hmm. So it was the subject matter that was controversial. Okay, okay. They okay. didn't want yeah. me to do anything so, that was critical of the profession. Well, why why do you think that? What? Why so? What, what, what were your thoughts on that? Uh, I think part of it was that it was the end of the Reagan era. You know, Reagan, I started my PhD program in 1987. And Reagan, you know, was his term ended at the very beginning of 1989. And I think that there was a prevailing attitude in the country that affirmative action had compensated for 300 and some years of slavery, followed by Jim Crow, followed by continued discrimination. And so... I think a lot of people thought, well, we had affirmative action in the late 60s and the 70s, and now it's time to just say we're on a level playing field. So let's just not do anything to try to, you know, no special efforts for any particular group that's been left behind for hundreds of years or disadvantaged educationally or anything else. So uh, I think that was part of it. And I think another big part of it was they got all their money from the big firms, you know, as most accounting departments do. Oh. They, they get scholarships, they get chaired professorships, they get, this is it, it's different today. The firms aren't as uh, narrow in their definition of what's acceptable, but um, I don't think they, I think they were worried I was going to anger their funders. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you had to, so that's great. So you did your, your dissertation work and then you went back. Yeah, kind of, kind of move. So you went back to kind of move forward. Can you talk about that that process? And well, the wonderful thing, you know, because I was a member of NABA and I finally had a, a full time job and was 
able to go to NABA meetings, you know, had had uh, could pay for things like that because you know when you're a graduate student, you don't necessarily have a lot of money saved up. So uh, I started going to NABA meetings, and I found out that Denise Streeter, who was the president of the Washington D.C. NABA chapter, she had done a study of the first 100 Black CPAs. So she had gotten a list. There were there were so few Black CPAs in the first six and a half decades of the 20th century that a lot of people who were black CPAs actually kept a list of who the black CPAs were. So if you went to the Dean of the Business School at, How at Howard, he would have a list. And the, the there was a, one of the very first black CPAs was a professor at Morehouse College, at, at really at Atlanta University, but he taught at Morehouse as well. And uh, because it's all part of the same complex and he had kept a list. And then there was a group in Chicago and they had a list. So. Uh, so people kind of knew who the other black CPAs were, partly because to get a CPA, you had to work for a CPA and most white firms wouldn't hire black CPAs or black aspiring CPAs until the very late 1960s. And so people knew who each other were because they helped train each other. So, uh, so that was a big, you know, uh, for me, I had a big impetus to try to talk to as many of those people as I could because they were getting older. And um, when I found out that Denise had made a full list of the first 100 black CPAs, I asked her if, you know, she generously shared the data with me. We did a paper together for AOS and uh, we've done a couple book chapters together and we just wrote a paper together recently, but she very generously shared all that information with me. And then I called I called people and visited people and, and tried to talk to as many of the first 100 as I could. Wow. So how many people did you visit and, and what were some of those conversations like? Well, I talked to uh, uh, 33 of the first 100 black CPAs, um, most in person and just a couple by phone because um, they were if they were in like a place that was difficult to get to. The one woman I can remember distinctly talking to on the phone lived in West Virginia. And, uh, but then I also talked to a guy in Detroit because I wasn't, I guess, because I couldn't manage to get to Detroit, but I would go to big cities like Washington, Chicago, Atlanta, LA, New York, and talk to as many people in one weekend as I could. And the very first, I learned a lot on the first person I interviewed. The first person I interviewed was, was uh, Mil uh, Milton Wilson, who was the dean at Howard University. He was the first dean of Howard University School of Business to take it to AACSB accreditation. And I made the mistake of inviting him to dinner. So we ate, at, I can't remember the name of the place, but it was a seafood place. And when I listened to the tape afterwards, all it was was clanking silverware <laughs> dishes and servers asking us if we wanted anything more. And I was like, no, this is not going to work. So that is not an important part of the conversation, but it really struck me. I was like, okay, I got to get a little more professional about this. But the reason I interviewed him first actually was because another thing I did to try to find out about the first black uh, CPAs is I read, I, did, I can't say I read every accounting history, but I found every accounting history that I could through interlibrary loan or, you know, um, I guess mostly through interlibrary loan or through my library. And so the, so a lot of state societies have written uh, histories of their society. And m several of them I found would list the first woman who became a CPA in their state. Okay. But, it, but it was only the Texas, at the time, there might be new ones since, since I did this in the 90s. 
But at the time, the only author who mentioned the first black CPA in the state was the guy who wrote the Texas Society of CPAs history. And he said that Milton Wilson became a CPA in Texas by exchange from Illinois. And that, you know, so he was already a CPA. So by, you know, reciprocity and, but that the state society of um, CPAs in Texas wouldn't allow him to join until the late 1960s. And they told him, so Milton Wilson was a, had a PhD in 1951. So he was, you know, just behind William Campfield, who I know is a, yeah. a, a a role model for you. So yeah. Milton Wilson was just the same year, but a few months later, but he, uh, he became uh, a professor at Texas, what was then Texas State College for Negroes, which is now Texas Southern University. Mm. And here he is a distinguished professor, well, better educated than, you know, all the people in his, you know, the Texas CPAs, but they told him that he didn't, they didn't want him to join because they had social events and they didn't want him dancing at their dances. And so he was not allowed to join oh. for nearly 20 years. So I was like, I got to talk to this guy and hear this story from his perspective. And um, he laughed when he told it, which is, shows the resilience of the first 100 black CPAs. He just laughed and uh -huh. said, I didn't like dancing anyway. They would have had a perfect member. I wasn't planning on going to any of their dances anyway. <laughs> so he, you know, he, uh, like many of the people I interviewed, he ended up pr pursuing most of his career in education because colleges were segregated and because such a, you know, prior to the civil rights movement, especially, but even, you know, persisting afterwards, uh, he, a, a lot of the people I interviewed were able to find jobs in black institutions. So either they worked for black businesses or they worked for black colleges. And he was one of those who took his you know, the, the way he was treated and turned it around and tried to create opportunities for the young people first at Texas Southern and then at Howard University. And he really did, you know, uh, got he was the one who got AACSB accreditation for HBCUs at the first two schools that got it because he was his, oh, because wow. of his leadership. So, so it was great to have him, you know, to meet him first. I can tell other oh. stories if you'd like, or do you want me to Yes, I would like that. I, I think, it, as I mentioned before, you you mentioned uh, uh, Dr. Camfield and and just thinking about the to me the courage. So more than anything, the courage to pursue you know the the CPA license, your doctorate, and you don't don't know if you could get a job. You know, I mean, I kind of look at it in that way, you don't, or if you do, I can only imagine you, you're going to school with your classmates, but you may get a job, but because you talked about accreditation, many of the universities were not accredited and you had, you would be the highest level of education, and, but you're not getting the same pay as some of your, your colleagues. I just couldn't imagine what I, you know, what, what would you say to your family? Hey, I'm going to go for six years in school. I'm going to do all this and maybe I get a job. So I, I think about that courageousness. I, he is a, I didn't mean, don't want to interrupt, but wow, he's a perfect example of courageousness and exactly that, right? Because he was the first black person to get a, a PhD in accounting in the United States in 1951. 
And it was when Bill Russell, right about the time, it might be off by a couple of years, when Bill Russell was at University of San Francisco. So University of San Francisco was one of the schools. It's a Catholic school in San Francisco. And they had a powerhouse basketball team because of Bill Russell. And it was true that they were one, they were one of the first uh, majority white schools to even have black uh, players on their basketball team, right? And, and at least, you know, that not a, just a one token black player, right? So you we think of it here as like a progress, you know, I teach at San Francisco State now. So we think of it here as like this super progressive place. So Camfield's first job, Dr. Camfield's first job, was at the University of San Francisco. So when I heard that, I have to admit, I was kind of proud, you know, I'm like, look at San Francisco leading the way, <laughs> you know, cutting edge even, you know, 70 years ago, whatever. So then I look at the catalog of when he taught, right? The catalog from the year, he only taught at University of San Francisco for a year. And I look at the catalog. He is the only person on the entire school of business faculty who has a PhD the entire faculty, the dean only had a master's degree and they wow. were professors and associate professors and deans and he was a lecturer. So it gets wow. just to your point, how courageous and how like, like sometimes I go to work and somebody doesn't respect me and I'm kind of like, you can't ask me to teach at 8.30 in the morning. What are you talking about? You know, <laughs> I, and then I, I think of, William Campfield and him tolerant, you know, he had, he had no choice. People in the book over and over again, persevered against really terrible treatment that I hope, you know, people don't, I hope no one faces today, but I still, I admire them so mm -hmm. much. And they're such a, they're so inspiring to me as well. Mm -hmm. And, and also I have to, 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 to speak about your courageousness because you had challenges with your dissertation um, to, you know, you, you were mentioning there were challenges to getting that done. You talk about your, your, what about your book? Did that was your, uh, was the, your dissertation and then your book, was that sort of, uh, you, you pushed through a storm and then the book was a calm after the storm or, well, the book was, yeah, I have to say the book was the calm after the storm. I waited till I got tenure to write the book. And I know your students probably aren't interested in the vagaries of the tenure process, but you know, you have to hit certain marks or you're not going to get tenure. So I knew I wouldn't be able to do it. But once I had tenure, then I thought I can do this justice. I can, I, I had a sabbat, my first sabbatical, I spent just researching black history and visiting like, um, visiting the libraries at the schools that the people that Denise had put that list together. I, I, I went to the schools, universities where they had gone to school. I looked at their catalogs. I learned, you know, things about the different professors at, at Howard and Atlanta University and how they taught their classes. And I, um, so I, for me, it's all been gravy since then in a way, because what a, what a privilege to be able to talk I had conducted a lot of the interviews in the early 90s, but to be able to sit down and spend the time to write the book. And I, it's only 150 pages. I like to tell students that because I really tried to make it short enough so that students would want to read it. But I knew because of the trouble I had had 
in my PhD program, I knew I had to document every single thing. So I went to the AICPA and got meeting minute notes from the 50s and the 40s and the 60s when the American Institute of uh, Certified Public Accountants um, finally had a resolution against discrimination, you know, those kinds of things. I wanted to read the discussions that happened at those times. So I, um, I enjoyed doing the research. I enjoyed documenting it thoroughly. And I, but most of all, I just felt so privileged to be able to talk to the pioneers and to, you know, have them share their stories with me. And one interesting thing about accounting and, and also, you know, just for everybody, you know, the, everyone to know is that people, a lot of people don't know they're making history. They just want to get a job, right? They just want to support their families, like you implied with how courageous Dr. Campfield was. They want to support their families. They wanted some credentials that no one could take away from them. You know, they they knew that as black, uh, well well educated people, they knew they needed more education than their white counterparts. So they'd get an MBA, or they would get a PhD. They want to get the CPA. They wanted to be able to say, "Hey, look." You can't look down on me. I have accomplished all these things. And so to, to just to talk to them and to hear them share their stories, uh, like it was just such a privilege for me. There was one time that I was interviewing a guy in Chicago and he was telling me about how he had moved to Chicago so that he could work for Mary Washington because Mary Washington was the first black woman in the country to become a CPA. She became a CPA in 1943. She's much honored in Chicago now, but she fought very hard to accomplish what she did. She was, you know, her, most of her clients were the black community, but fortunately in the forties, the black community in, uh, there was a larger black middle-class in Chicago than many other places because during the war, many industries had uh, operated there and, a lot of black people from the south moved to chicago to work in these industries and then created you know opportunities for you know funeral homes uh, you know barbers doctors other you know middle class black people who would hire a cpa to do their taxes or possibly do audits and things like that and so she was a very impressive person and he like many other people moved to chicago specifically to work for her because again to meet the experience requirement, you had to work for a CPA and the white CPAs would not hire black aspirants. So the whole time I'm talking to him, and I didn't notice this until 45 minutes in, I, I finally realized that his wife is sitting around the corner. She's on a little, you know, like a straight back chair with her back against the wall. And when I saw her, I was like, oh, you know, come in and join us, come in and join us. And she said, oh, I didn't want to bother you, but he's never talked about his career. So I'm learning about him right now. And I just thought that, I just thought, because part of me thought at the time, do I have any business as a white person going and doing these interviews with these black CPAs? And then I thought, nobody's gonna gather these stories if I don't. So I was glad that I felt extremely privileged, like I said, but also at that moment, I thought even his wife doesn't know. Uh-huh. what he went through to get, you know, she just knew he was trying to make a living for the family. So it was, it was a uh, great. Well, you, you are the source. <laughs> you are the source when it, when it comes to talking about not, not only uh, 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 African-Americans in accounting, but accounting in general, your, your name comes up because of that, that history. Um, and, and those those conversations. One thing I'm curious about 
because I, I do want to hear more of the conversations, but what were some of the reactions of the, the individuals you interviewed when they heard your story? Because you, the, you did all of this after your dissertation, after you had tenure. What were some of their, their thoughts about your, your path? Well, I, I have to say the people who knew it the best were the, I, I, when I was in grad school, I worked for a black owned CPA firm in Milwaukee. And so the men I worked for there, they were not in the book, but they saw what I went through. And so, you know, cause they saw while I was, in, you know, I was working part-time there and I probably broke out in tears a few, <laughs> a few times talking to them about, you know, the uphill battle I was facing. And so one of the greatest pleasures was that um, when my book came out, um, it just turned out that my sister, I'm from Wisconsin and I got my PhD in Wisconsin. Um, my sister was friends with a librarian at the, at the Milwaukee Public Library. And so her friend invited me to give a talk at the Milwaukee Public Library that year. And I was you know, telling stories from the book and one of my friends from NABA that I had worked with at that point, it was about 10 or 12 years earlier. He, he got up and he said, Teresa, you just told all these stories about the book, but you never said how, what a hard time they gave you at Wisconsin when you were getting your PhD. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking, yeah, you know, I think I've kind of repressed some of those, those thoughts, but, <laughs> but it was great to have him there to like witness what I had gone through and then what I, you know, how, how the book, you know, sort of came out almost in a different era, right? In 2000. So it was quite a while later. And, and to see that, you know, people now again, this since uh, George Floyd's murder in 2020, there's been increased interest in this history again. And so there are people who are recognizing that, but I think the, the, the people in my book, I don't think they were hundred percent, hundred percent aware of it. They were just like, who's this person who wants to, you know, write about my story. And they would always almost, at least at least a half of them said that they were happy to participate for the cause they wanted to help for the future they weren't self-aggrandizing they knew this was not a money making a, a undertaking they just wanted to 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 share their trailblazing stories to inspire future generations oh, so i try great. to do that as much as i can oh when well, you're doing that and that, and that, that's wonderful that's wonderful so so if, if and, and I want to be respectful of your time, but can can you share some more stories of the conversations? Um, oh, I, yeah, I'd be happy to because they're they're quite shocking in in some ways. You know, to be talking for, you know, as you said a little earlier in your intro, like that I talked to people who experienced this. It's not that long ago, right? It's not ancient history where I had to find letters, you know, that people wrote during the Civil War to share their stories. This is something that happened within you know our lifetimes my lifetime anyway and um the so one of the things that i was super blown away by even though i kind of had read about it but i hadn't really heard a person tell the story was that if you were a black person at a southern school you went to an hbcu at the time it was just a black college right it wasn't an hbcu because it wasn't historically black it was currently a black college right <laughs> and if you wanted to but if you wanted to become a cpa you, uh, the 90, well, almost never, the 
graduate school in the state would not accept you as a student. And so, for example, Bernadine Gines was the first black CPA, female CPA in New York. And she graduated uh, in the 40s from, uh, from what is now Virginia State University. And I think at the time it was Virginia State College for Negroes or some, something along those lines. Um, and when she was a, a student there, and it was uh, towards the end of World War II, and so there were more women than men on campus. But when she was a student there, her professor told her that she could go to college, she could go to grad school at NYU and the state of Virginia would pay for it. And I had read that before, but I'd never really thought about it. So the state of Virginia was so determined to keep her out of the University of Virginia. And the University of Virginia was one mile from her parents' home. They wow. were so determined to keep her out that they would rather pay for her to go to NYU. And so she went to NYU and she got her MBA there. And again, this is at a time where not all the states required you to have a college education. And she's got an MBA from one of the top schools in the country. She still can't get a job in any firm in New York. And New York is supposed to be more progressive than Virginia. So she couldn't get a job right. in any firm in New York, none of the big firms, despite the fact that all her classmates from NYU in the late forties went off to big firms. Mm -hmm. And so she, she worked at a, the, um, she worked at a black newspaper uh, in New York and she uh, was, but she continued to look for a job as because she really wanted to get her CPA. She lived at the Harlem YWCA, the Harlem Young Women's Christian Association. That was where she, that was her address. And every time she sent a letter out applying for a job from there, she didn't get any interviews at all. So she moved to Queens. And as soon as she moved to Queens, she started getting job interviews because they're like, look at her. She's, you know, got an MBA from, from NYU. This is great. And she would show up at the interview and they'd be like, oh, no, I'm sorry. No, we can't hire you because you're black. One guy asked her if he could help her find a maid. And when she, she told, this is, she tell, she told me this, she had made me lunch because she knew I was coming from something else. And she hadn't asked me, but she had made me this beautiful lunch and I'd never met her before. I just want to sure. burst into tears with this story. Oh. Asked you to help her find, help him find a maid. And then sure. she said she finally found a small Jewish owned firm and uh, almost every black person that I interviewed who worked for a white owned firm worked for a Jewish owned firm because Jews were also discriminated against in the firms, in the bigger firms. And she, um, but she worked for a small Jewish owned firm and they, she stayed there until she had met her experience requirement. And then she said she was sick of working on Saturdays. And so she went to work for the city. And, uh, you know, when she passed away, they, they, you know, they really honored her, you know, in the, the New York State Society of CPAs really honored her. And they invited her to speak a couple times uh, in the last couple decades of her life, which meant a lot to me, too, because I was really glad that she had gotten some of the recognition that she deserved, partly because of the book, right, because she, you know, people started learning about what she had accomplished. So she really, you know, went through it. And then she said, even in the city of New York, one time she was auditing she she was out auditing sales tax and somebody said oh this one of the they're not clients if you're the state of new york but one of the people she was auditing said well i'm going to wait till the cpa is here and she said no i am the cpa <laughs> <laughs> so another person who so so it's just a kind of a oh the part i have to add to that is that there was a black owned firm in new york but they wouldn't hire women 
And so she oh, wow. work at Lucas Tucker because Lucas Tucker, and I confirmed that with a guy who worked at that firm at the time. And he said, yeah, they didn't hire women. That was true of the fake firms too. They didn't hire women either. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. But, but I, I just, the, the, the courage, I mean, because like you said, she was in Virginia and you know, she could have just stopped there. And then she yeah, decided. Yeah, she could have been a teacher. She could have been, you know, she probably would have had a nice, comfortable middle class, no banging your head against the wall lifestyle. Yeah. But she stayed in New York for the rest of her life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and got the MBA and still wanted to pursue and, and had problems getting a job. That's why I say that the, the courage oh, had yeah. problems getting yeah. a job. And, and I'm, I'm sure she knew the situation uh, as far as the experience requirement and going through that, the, the courage. That's, that's the thing that I really uh, oh, admire. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the people I interviewed who are about that age, they would say that their parents really encouraged them to get as many credentials mm -hmm. as possible. And a lot of them said that they thought that World War II would change. So their parents said that they thought that World War II was going to change opportunities. And so they would say to their son or daughter, and there are a lot of daughters, there's 11 women out of the first 100 black CPAs, which is mm -hmm. higher than the percentage of, of white uh, women who would have made up uh, the, the majority majority CPAs at the time. In 1965, it wasn't 11% CPAs were not women. But, um, but they said that their parents said that after the war, we think things are going to change the civil rights movement. But they didn't call it that at the time, but of course, the civil rights there were a lot of movements for civil rights during the 40s as well. And you they were like, you get educated and you be ready because when opportunities open up, you're going to be ready to walk in that door. But they, you know, they didn't know when things were going to change. Mm. Mm. So Tab Tillman moved from uh, the South to Los Angeles. He had mm -hmm. an MBA at Syracuse University and mm -hmm. he, he was the first black MBA from Syracuse University. And in the early 50s, he got himself a Thomas guide to LA. And he knew that if they found out if the firms found out he was black after he sent in an application. And again, he had an undergraduate degree from Indiana University and a graduate degree from Syracuse. There was no reason they wouldn't, they would recognize that he was a black person. He decided he was going to walk into every single firm and give him his resume so that he would not, he would avoid any unnecessary interviews because he didn't want to waste time. And I just think he walked for six weeks before he finally found a job. And I just find that like incredibly admirable. Like what persistence, right? Yeah, it is. It is. It's amazing. I, I, I wanted to ask you this. I know you had many interviews. What, what was, what was your, would you say was your best I, or, or if there is, or, or should, should I say the best of the best? Well, the one that comes to mind is Theodore Rutherford. And mm -hmm. it's because it's just because, so again, um, I, I'm one of 12 children. I didn't have, I paid my way through college and grad school. So I didn't, you know, like I, I didn't feel rich at the beginning of this. So I like my first interviews catches cash can they're literally on cassette tapes that used to have music on them so i would over tape over my music and interview somebody like i was such a cheapskate about it all you know and i didn't have, you know i was just trying to so one of the things i did was i interviewed people kind of in the order that they had gotten their cpas because 
I, again, I felt like I was playing beat the clock because they were going to, I, I wanted to get, I was saving the younger people for last, let's just say, because I, mm. who knows, you know, a lot of these people were in their 70s, 80s, even 90s by the time I interviewed them. So I had kind of put off interviewing Theodore Rutherford because all I had, all I had on her from Denise was, you know, CPA 1960 West Virginia. So when I called her, I expected her to be, I don't know, 70 maybe. And she was 88 years old and she had gotten her MBA from Columbia University in 1923. And she didn't become a 1923. So she should be one of the first black CPAs in the country. She should be one of the first five, but she wasn't one of the first five. She went to Howard University when she was a young girl and she, uh, her professor there, this, this O.C. Thornton, he encouraged her to become a CPA. He got her a scholarship to both uh, Harvard or Columbia. And I was living in Boston at the time. And I was really ashamed to hear her say that she chose New York. She chose Columbia over Harvard because she knew that in Boston, that it would be a very racist town. And the only job she would be able to get would be as a domestic worker. This is the 19, early 1920s now. She did not want to be a domestic worker. She decided if she went to New York, she'd be able to find other jobs. And she did. She addressed envelopes. That was her, because she had nice handwriting. That was her job, was working for a company addressing envelopes. Different, clearly different jobs than our students get today, right? But um, uh -huh. so then she she took a job at um, in West Virginia as a professor, because at the time it was a, a black college. And so she couldn't get her CPA until West Virginia changed the rules in 19, the late 1950s, that if you had a master's degree, then teaching could count as part of your experience requirement. So she, oh wow, yeah. So she took her in her late 50s. She took the CPA exam, became a CPA, and then when I talked to her, she had just retired when she was 85. So she, so I would say that was the she retired from teaching. She retired. No, she retired from being a CPA. So she was doing taxes oh. and she was doing so she she taught until I actually honestly don't know when she retired, but she kept her CPA business up until she was 85 years old. So that wow. was one of the most astounding and wonderful. And I love talking to her. She I found out later that when she was 14 or 15, you know, uh, Juneteenth, right, is celebrates when Texans found out. The, the, about the Emancipation Proclamation or the, uh, about the Emancipation at the end of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So there's a park in, in Houston called Emancipation Park. And when she was 14 or 15, she was Miss Liberty at this, this is 1919, maybe, 1918. She was Miss Liberty and they gave free meals to all the former Civil War soldiers and all the ex-slaves. So she, I talked to a woman who was wow. Miss Liberty at Emancipation Park to celebrate Juneteenth with former slaves, formerly wow. enslaved people. Yeah, that kind of blows blows my mind. And just wow. this year, so there's, it's not just the beautiful interviews, but there's also some sort of, you know, cascading effects that happen afterwards. Well, just this year, um, so Columbia University, I, I got in touch with them and told them about her, right? Because they, she's in their records, but they didn't keep track of their first black graduate. So just this year, they celebrated the 100th anniversary of when she started school there. Oh, yeah. wow. And they, and they wow. named a scholarship after her. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, that's, that is awesome.
Yeah. And, and you had a part in that in connecting and yeah, and, just uh, all I did was mentioned it, you know, like I said, I just shared like the, the I found a little uh, alumni card. It's, you know, the, let's say, you know, Joe Smith's alumni card and then, you know, Sally, whatever's alumni card. And then it's Theodora Rutherford's alumni card. And it's the word Negro is written in pencil on it. Now, uh, so I sent them oh. like I was in their archives. Nobody else was looking her up, right? I looked her up in their archives and I pointed out to them why, or I asked them probably, nobody else's race is identified on these things. You know, why is hers? Uh, so, yeah. And then the Black student group at Columbia and the MBA program, they're the ones that ran with it and decided that they were going to uh, celebrate her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's connecting the dots. That That is amazing. That That is See, that's another another great encouraging story. I think I think it's good to 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 end on that note. Um, but but I do want to ask you this one final because I know students are going to um, watch this. What 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 words or what what can you say to encourage them just in in the profession and and uh, yeah, I think you in their studies. Yeah, I think you need to keep your eye on the prize. You you know, there's a lot of unfairness in the world and we need to, I know I need to spend the majority of my effort trying to fight that unfairness and change the world and make it a better place. But in the meantime, as an individual, I understand that we need to keep our own goals in mind and say, okay, this is the fight I'm gonna undertake now. And this is the fight I'm gonna save for later and look at these trailblazers and what they overcame and i can do i can meet my goals so that i can be in a situation where i can help others like i it's very hard to draw the line of where you make the compromises but i think we should constantly be thinking about maintaining our integrity putting change and making the world a better place foremost but also saying but i also have to meet my goals and how can I get the tools that I need so that I can succeed and follow in the footsteps of people like Theodore Rutherford, who, you know, waited 30 years, 35 years to get her CPA and still stuck with it because that was her goal. Oh, see that, that is awesome. And if where, where, what's the best place to get your book? So I like to send people to, I, I actually, look, I even met a dress to match my book today. I like to send people to the University of North Carolina Press because it's a not-for-profit organization, you know, and they sell, you know, they were kind enough to publish it, I should say, because a lot of places weren't interested when I first tried to get it published. They, they literally said to me, well, you just told me there aren't many black accountants. So why would anybody read a book on black accountants? How are we going to sell a book? A book on black accounts. You just told me there aren't many. <laughs> so I really appreciate University of North Carolina Press. They have a long history of excellent research on black history, including back in the 30s when the school itself was segregated, which is kind of amazing. So University of North Carolina Press or ask your local independent bookstore or you can get it on Amazon. <laughs> that might be the most convenient. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank Dr. you. Hammond. This is this has been a treat and I really appreciate it. Oh, I've really enjoyed it too. And I'm looking forward to the next time we see each other at a AAA meeting. Yes. Thank yes. You. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you for you. all your good work. Thank you. And